Hello and welcome back to the Hypothesis. We are at the beginning of episode 41, which is our fourth season. In fact, this is an anniversary. Last year on May 19th, we came up with our first episode on acoustic black holes and Liam's work. Now we are not re- revisiting that for this episode, but we are talking about something kind of new. But my name is Feely. I'm Patrick. And I'm Liam. So, it has been one year that we've been together. We took a little break um, between season to let us organize ourselves and catch up with our work. Also, that, you know, it's the end of semester, at, well, end of academic semester. So, we have some stuff to catch up on. So, are you guys have anything to talk about in terms of, you know, for an intro topic or update? Yeah, uh, I mean, during the break, I spent my time in Costa Rica, uh, which is not as fun as it sounds. I was taking data for my research projects, and it was a little bit brutal. Uh, So the overall goal was to map where trees are, so that when we look at forest from space, we're able to tell which trees are located essentially within each pixel of an image. Uh, This is very important to know so that way we can say okay there are x amount of trees of certain species in one pixel and then in the adjacent pixel there are uh a different number of species and a different number of individuals that's in that pixel which is very important for trying to measure biodiversity and other aspects of a forest uh in reality if we measured well over 10,000 trees using a specialized gps device or gnss um, global navigation satellite system uh, device. And it was 40 degrees usually with direct sunlight and very hot. So it, it, it was an experience to say the least. I'm not seeing your tan at all. You look as pale as when you left. <laughs> I'm probably... Stop judging us. <laughs> so, so in these forests, uh, the ticks are a giant problem along with uh, red ants, which will bite you, and it hurts a lot, along with a whole bunch of other bugs. So I was wearing pants, long t-shirt, and sunscreen, and a massive hat just to stay out of the sun. Uh, for reference, the UV index every single day was 11, which is, I don't think we can even get that in Canada. God. Yeah. That's what happened when the also layer is not happy, you know? <laughs> I uh, think I would have died. Well, also a lot of things. This, the problematic thing is that, you know, things in the forest, the thing that would hurt you really bad or kill you are really small. You know, it's just tough. Like here in Canada, things that would kill you are, they look like it's going to kill you. Like, you know, bear moves like, oh yeah, you're not going to, you know, go near them. They're like the, these little ants in Canada, they, they're harmless. It's certainly, uh, the insects were the worst, especially the ticks, but uh, for example, there they have jaguars. You don't really worry about them. They stay away from people for the most part. Whereas they have wa- giant wasp nests on the ground. So you, if you accidentally step near one, they can feel the vibrations and they just go whatever's causing those vibrations. So yeah, small things will hurt you and can kill you. So Liam, anything interesting? Uh, I haven't. I haven't been up to too much. Um... What did I do again? I I wrote an exam way back in like the end of April for my Q at quantum field theory and curved space-time class, and we still haven't gotten the marks back yet, even though they were due like three weeks ago or something. So classic, classic uh, professor things. But um, yeah, I've just been working. I've been catching up on some things. Um, June is a pretty busy month for me. I have this like quantum simulator conference at Perimeter Institute in Ontario. So that's quantum simulators. They're kind of like like a, an acoustic black hole is something you study that mimics a black hole. Turns out you can you can study things that mimic 
um, other systems. So I, a, a popular thing is that people study like superconductors and solid state systems, and those are really complicated because they're a bunch of atoms really tightly bound. So there's a lot of complex interactions happening. Um, but you can you can mimic you can study you can like create ultra cold atomic systems and study kind of like fundamental physics which which mimics um the solid state stuff and that's a really popular thing although it's not something i've ever done but i'm I'm gonna go to a conference at perimeter institute with this and learn about it because it's kind of kind of like that what i do except instead of gravity it's for solid state stuff um then I'm going to Nova Scotia for a week to visit my my family and friends and whatnot, so that'll be fun. And then I'm going to Italy for a week after that <laughs> for, an, for a quantum gravity conference, which will be really fun as well. Quantum gravity? You, or no, it's not quantum gravity. quantum gravity. Sorry, no, um, analog gravity, I meant to say. But, but okay. the whole point of analog gravity is to like learn about quantum gravity. So I, I don't do quantum gravity, but I talk about it a lot and pretend that I do. Interesting, huh? Quantum gravity is—I don't know where they're gonna go with quantum gravity. Honestly, I think it might work, but it's—it's it's gonna be a while until, yeah, until, you know, we see any meaningful things out of it. I guess the whole, yeah, the whole point of quantum gravity is that you're trying to figure out a way to detect something that tells you about it. Because there's all these theories, but none of them really. There's no, yeah, there's, there's a lot of theories, but you need experimental evidence. So that's kind of the hard part is because um, the regime where quantum mechanics couples to gravity is really, really hard to get to. And it turns out like black holes are one of the only things we know that can do that. And, you know, we can't really, black holes are so far away and so hard to get close to and we can't really probe them. So it's hard to test anyway going to avoid getting into a quantum gravity conversation today. All right, then shall we get into our main topic then? Feely, what have you been up to? Ah, I was... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna... I tried to get away from, from that, but hey, you know, I've been just wrapped up semester. I have a few projects that I finished up. I mean, one of my class finished, one of my community initiative projects finished-ish. So we, I think we are kind of made a like, final revision right now. Kind of. I'm, I'm not so sure, actually. Um, just waiting for some feedback. But my, my class actually submitted grades um, on time, in time, and it, was, it came out on time. So I don't know what your problem was, Liam. Um, <clears throat> the problem but, is that the, uh, the prof just hasn't marked it yet. I went and asked him like a couple days ago. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I haven't marked it yet. It's like, come on, man. I thought that they usually have deadlines because, like, people graduate, you know, at the end of semester, right? And if you don't have grades, you, you might not be able to graduate. But it turns out there's only like eight people in this class, and all of them are not graduating. So I think he's, I think he took that into account. <laughs> anyway, well, I guess you can do that. But you know, I started up my new projects. Have a couple, oh, one summer student. And we got gonna be hammering it out this summer. I'm trying to push it, pushing um, one of the papers that I've been writing out, and it's it has been quite difficult to write, but it's it's worthwhile, I guess. So just you know, nose to the grindstone. Not too much to talk about. It didn't go to any place fancy. It went to actually, I didn't really go anywhere, did I? Yeah, I'm just you know. In the trench, just keep digging. But that's it for me. I think this summer might be more interesting things to do once it's warmer. I like, I think yesterday I woke up, it's like five degrees outside. It's like, why? Why? But it is what it is. Anyways, I think we shall move on to the little main topic that I think I found. Well, actually, one of my friend's brother, who was in grade 12, finishing grade 12, uh, asked me this question. He saw this um, theory, quote-unquote, or video, a short video in the video broadcasting platform, uh, the, the ones that quite popular, the, the clock one, tick-tick-tock-tock uh, one. Yeah, so that one. And, and it was the, it's an excerpt well, it's a short excerpt video from a Netflix documentary or 
well, I mean, that Netflix movie slash show called A Trip to Infinity is about the power of infinity. And there is this thought experiment called the apple in a box that is quite interesting. So I think I explained to him in my, my view, but I think now I look into it more, they have actually pretty interesting background that I think we should talk about. So let me explain the apple in a box theory or apple in a box. So it's about infinite time. So let's say you have an isolated box, like like a box is isolated from outside the world. Like you cannot access the inside, you cannot see it, you cannot heat it, you cannot nothing can permeate through the boundaries of the box. And let's say you have an apple, you want and you put apple in that box. Okay. So, so what happened? So if you leave the box for a very long time, right? So the apple would decay normally, just decay into smaller. Uh, pieces maybe it just breaks down the organic matter breaks down and it, you know the apple would be gone right if you think logically like uh, you know, follow normal reasoning however if you wait long enough sufficiently long all the molecules would break down into their um, into their elementary particles you know and then even nucleus would break down into protons neutrons and those things also break down into sub subatomic particles, all these you know, smaller particles maybe break out to quarks and all interaction make them break, break down to the most fundamental particles. And we talked a little bit about that in the Heat Death of the Universe episode where you know, eventually things go to the most stable state or phase where you have nothing left, basically, or just like some random fluctuations, perhaps, or the most disordered state. However, if you we use inf- you have infinite time, because the the po- okay, it is possible, though not very probable, that the particle would collide a certain way and come back into um, the previous state. You know, they are accessible because quantum fluctuations. It, it's possible if you wait long enough that the apple would reconstruct itself. And maybe you open the box and you see the same apple again because you give it infinite time, the apples, you'd have to reuse the state, right? There's a number of finite number of states that particle can be in. So if you give it infinite time, it had to reuse the states. And one of the reused states have to be the full apple. So that's an idea that um, emphasizes the power of the infinite over the finite, right? So if you have the finite number of states, even though it's so high, maybe 10 to the, you know, many powers, 10 to the 100 or something, 20, 10 to the 50, but that is a finite number. And if it's possible to revisit the state, then it has to revisit it at some point because you give it infinite time. And the theory that um, cover kind of the foundation of that is called Poincaré recurrence theorem, where it said like, well, oh, you have some kind of dynamical system that, or dynamical means it just evolved with time that has like this type of Hamiltonian or whatnot, or it doesn't have to be Hamiltonian, you know, that it, being des- described by um, ordinary dis- differential equation or differential equations. And if it's the phase space is volumetrically conserved, I mean, like the volume of the phase space is conserved, I mean, like you have like a finite amount of states available, then, you know, through the dynamics is have to, reuse the states that's used before and there's um there's a certain amount of time that required to to basically a guideline of like well when once you reach this time it will have to reuse the states because it used all the states and then I maybe mean, you will reconstruct things. So maybe I'm thinking about this not like ideally enough. <clears throat> but like if you put when I think about putting an apple in a box where it can't interact with anything outside the box, 
what I guess when I think of an apple decaying, I think of it's like it's fermenting and it's interacting with its environment a ton, and there's bacteria on it and stuff. So, so why would this apple decay if it's the if it's the only thing in the box and it's not interacting with anything? Because like you see, in my mind, if you put like an apple in a perfect vacuum with nothing else in it, it should. I mean, at least within the time scales of. Again, this is all about time scales, right? But like, just naively, if you don't think about infinite time, you'd think, okay, this apple's not gonna ferment or decay or any, or it'll do some stuff. But because there's nothing else in the box with it, it'll it won't like turn to mush. But I guess you know, on the t time scales are very very long. You get decay, you get like atoms decaying and particles decaying. So I wonder if you can comment on that. All organic material have lifetime, you know, like mm -hmm. they 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 don't last forever, and and that could be because the entropy maybe have interactions. Well, they might not even be able because interaction because normal fluctuations also, you know, like if you leave a rock for a million years, it might still be there. How about billion years? How about you know, is would nothing decay at all, right? Like because we know from elementary particles, they had some that have really short lifetimes, some have longer lifetime, but they're not forever, right? Like these things don't exist forever. Even proton, neutrons, you know, um, black holes don't exist forever. Well, we don't we don't quite know that one, but they shouldn't. Um, but I mean, technically, I think. All right, maybe I'm wrong. I need to double check this. But I think so. Like half, like radioactive decay and half life. Like you know, molecules decay into other things after enough time, and protons. We don't know if they decay, but there's some theories that think they do, and some maybe some that don't. But I think when something decays, it's actually this quantum field theory. I think it's interacting with um, these, you know, invisible quantum fields that permeate all of space time. Like for a hydrogen atom, um, an electron can spontaneously kind of emit a photon like it can hop up to an excited state and jump back down randomly on its own without anyone poking it with a stick and you can only describe that with quantum field theory because it's interacting with these kind of with the vacuum of space so i'm wondering if what is this like radioactive decay or things like that which cause all these particles to decay down to nothing after a while are they are they technically still interacting with the vacuum or what I do just want to comment on something you mentioned quickly, which is proton decay. This was something I was fascinated by for a while. Uh, but just to mention it is it's still a theory. We don't know if it actually happens, but essentially it says that protons could potentially decay, but their half-life uh, would be around 10 to the 31 to 10 to the 36 years. Uh, for reference, our universe is about 10 to the 10 years old. so very very long half-life uh more than really anything else that we know of but um but again given infinite time then protons could very well decay exactly because you know like radioactive active material are recalled like unstable material right so they want to decay but you could say proton is stable but in the grand scheme of thing you look further you say well are there any, you know, states that more fundamental than protons? Well, then they have lower energy states or lower entropy states. Oh, sorry, higher entropy states. Or, well, I mean, talk about entropy is kind of hard when, when you don't have, like, um, averages. So if you look at one particle, entropy doesn't make any sense. But, but if it's one particle, you know, it would want to go to the most stable, right? Like, if you think of... Um, the conventional way of looking at time and proton might not be the most fundamental state that it could be. So if you give it sufficiently enough time, it would decay into something that are more fundamental. I think entropy still makes sense when you talk about one particle though, because that one particle can have a bunch of different states to exist in, right? So you can, you can say it has kind of, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but my, my understanding, and again, entropy is like, you kind of you kind of sum up all the different states something can exist in, and entropy kind of characterizes that. So if you have one particle, it can have different states, so it should still have an entropy. Yeah, but but like the theory that govern entropy also had to deal has has you know a lot of um, formulation from it are from 
like building from averages and stuff. So yeah, it wouldn't um, accurately describe the reality if only have three particles. Like thermodynamics don't work when you have like five particles, right? Like thermodynamic yeah. limit actually like really important. Not re- let's say like kind of requirement, but like a um, a restriction that you need to have to for the static. Well, one one of the argument that I put against the apple in the box theory was the second law of thermodynamics that, well, I mean, if it decays into something of a higher entropy state or, or disorder, you can't go from disorder back to order, right? That, that doesn't sound right. Um, so let's say apple decays into something that's not apple, like into a gloopy blob. Um, but the gloopy blob to, to recreate an apple, because apple has order, it has low entropy. And to go from higher to low entropy, you need to in put in energy. And if the box is isolated, you can't do that. So how can a goopy blob be an apple again? So that's an argument against the argument against that too. So I guess I look into it more. It's like, well, I mean, if you believe in second law of thermodynamics, which, you know, hasn't been broken much as many other laws, but there's a claim that it's not absolute either, and I think we can talk about it in a bit. But we talk about the entropy and second law of thermodynamics in our um, end of the universe, uh, heat death of universe episode a little bit. Oh, well, I mean, I think extensively, but I think it's the same idea here that the natural evolution of any system, um has this type of, well, if you leave it with time, with adding no energy, it always maximizes entropy. And it's what we observe is what's to be found in the universe that, you know, we believe it anything, any system isolated, it will maximize the entropy. And why, why would it come back to be an apple? It doesn't make that much sense to me the first time. So there are two conflicting sides to this to this theory, the first is is that said, well, okay, um, we were talking about before that because it's possible to be formed that the the apple is one of the states has to be reused, then because of fluctuations, gradually, this is not fast thing, gradually it would revisit those states, and the second conflicting side, the other side, is that well, well, entropy kind of dictates how evolution goes. In terms of the, in the system, so the the arrow of time flows one way, and, and the the way it goes is from order to disorder. And if you want to to go against the flow, you have to put in energy. I guess just just thinking about this and thinking about energy input and what would happen over time uh, makes me think about the heat death of the universe, where after many trillions and trillions of years stars will stop fusing there wouldn't really be any motivation per se for any galaxies to form because there's no stars and there wouldn't really be clumping so uh heat will die in the universe where there's not really any um transitions happening uh if if that's a fair way to put that um and so if the universe's time is infinite would that be kind of like the apple in a box where it will eventually go through all states as well. Well, actually, I talked about it a little bit with my colleague too. Well, I mean, universe is like apple in a box, but I think we will re- we should revisit that little later once we set up this more, because the the argument that they had is not to go against entropy was that well, second law of that thermodynamics is not absolute. Ha! Huh? I was like, whoa, what? Um, because they work only in statistical is a statistical fact so it works when you have a lot of like ensembles which means you have a bunch of particles you have more particles it doesn't work for when you look at each individual particle and it's going to make sense you know you describe with a microscopically using quantum mechanical like quantum mechanics right like so that's not average well some some they use average but like you know in, in many body problems it's different than statistical mechanics. 
So it's possible if you believe in quantum fluctuations, right? Like to for a particle to fluctuate into a lower entropy state, it should be able to, right? Like if you believe in you know the Heisenberg uncertainty, it just can't just fluctuate into states that possibly contribute to lower entropy in the system. So it is possible. And then if you have, let's say, a hundred particles, right? It is also possible, though unlikely, that all particles would fluctuate to the same, or to the to all of them fluctuate to all lower entropy states. And to construct an apple is just a configuration. Your particles have to collide a certain way, and that is possible. So, so all these fluctuations is possible to recreate all these tissues in the apple, though unlikely, right? The, the collisions would create that. Because it can go, it can fluctuate to that those states, and it's possible for those tissue to kind of interact a certain way and create you know cells and like uh, you know cell structure that create apple again. And if it's possible from fluctuations, then with infinite time, it has to revisit it. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was trying to get at. I think when I was talking about when you have the apple in the box, if if you want things to change you need some kind of interaction and so technically there's something in that box interacting with the apple there's the quantum like the vacuum like the vacuum of space which is actually described by quantum field theory <clears throat> and that's the power of the infinite time i guess is although these little quantum fluctuations are super unlikely to all suddenly recreate the apple if you have an infinite time infinity is this weirdly confusing powerful thing where if time's infinite then it's going to happen at some point it's like that um I forget the name of it, but it's like some thought experiment where if you have a monkey at a typewriter and he's just typing away, if you leave him for an infinite amount of time, because it's an infinite amount of time, he'll eventually recreate all of Shakespeare's works, which is like, even if he's just randomly typing on it without any thought. Well, on that too, because it's like, um, you know, when you, like, yeah, if you look at any irrational number, you find all the patterns of numbers, right? Because if it go infinitely, it has to go through all the stuff. Um, it's it makes some sense, right? Uh, I I had another analogy, but I kind of like forgot midway. I had like a brain fart, but I think it's important to recognize that like probability and possibilities diff are different. Like, it's even though it's possible, it doesn't mean it's probable. But oh. The analogy is like the, the, the system has like the very complicated or really difficult trick shot, which is the, you know, like you, you, you see it all the time, you know, in teenagers do these days, they do trick shots, which are very unlikely, but it happens, right? So if you try it long enough, it might happen. So in the same way, it's like it's, if it's possible to reconstruct an apple for all, from all these elementary particles, then, I mean, you try it, you know, at, to, uh, sufficiently many times, then why why wouldn't Apple be excess again? This the the way I think of it. I mean, a mathematician would slap me in the face for saying this because it's mathematically not sound. But my the way I think of it is that if you have an infinitely small probability for something to happen, it's probably not going to happen. But then if you give it an infinite amount of time to happen, it's kind of like the, the, the infinitely small cancels out the infinitely large and then you get like a one. So you get a, it's going to happen at some point. That's kind of yeah, the way I like think about it. Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can happen will happen because the universe is so big. But we, we know the universe is not so big <laughs> uh, so compared to what's possible. Yeah, so I don't know if you plan on getting into this now or later. But what Patrick was saying is that it's apple in a box. It actually, it kind of sounds like the universe. You can treat the universe as an apple inside of a box. And I think there's an analogy there to like uh, contracting and expanding periodically, kind of like appearing and disappearing universe, maybe. Well, the th one thing I want to get to that before universe is time. We say infinite time, but... You know, a way to challenge these these theories because like their their logic is very sound when you go through it. So you have to challenge the underlying principle or axiom behind it. So one thing that I challenged it was this, how how do you find time? What do you mean time? Infinite time? What does that even mean? So 
So this, if you time think in conventional sense as like a lie, timeline, right? Like, oh, it just goes straight. You know, there's something exits outside the system called time, and when time progress, interactions happens, right? Is that's like a more conventional sense? But I don't think that's really how it works. Ah, well, I mean, I might get you know, bashed on for this, but so time is change. That's been around for a while since like the Greeks, like Heraclitus and um, you know, the fire and time. But that that's not the point. So time, how do you measure time? You have to measure change. Well, is time a consequence of change or change the consequence of time? So in in the apple in a box thing, it's more like change is a consequence of time because time progress, things change. But I would like to point out that well, it might be the other way around where time is a consequence, it's a measure of change. Is that's why GR works, that general relativity works because what is length? Length you measure two events, you measure the spatial, um, or you could say spatial duration between, uh, between two points, right? So that's we call them length. Or or spatial distance between um between two two events. Because you have to have two events to measure length. Well what is time? It's a temporal length between two events. Yeah, you might not measure it specially, that's but that but you still have to have two events to measure time. So that's why time in relativity has been used as one of the coordinates, right? Think about it, because time to measure it, you have to have two events, event A and event B, and the length or duration. You know, I use that interchangeably. The length between two events in temporally we call them duration or time. So does time progress because uh, like independently, or do we have to measure? The change for time to progress, or even like how to define time that way. So let's say if time exists independently, okay, thing fluctuation can happen, okay, right. But if if times only progress certain way from change, that change induced time, then if the change that are possible are only the change that goes through higher entropy states. So follow the second law of the thermodynamics are the change that create that actually progress time. Then it's not possible to go to lower entropy states because you wouldn't be able to observe the flow of energy fluctuations because that that's not how time progress because the time that we see only progress when the um, the thing or the system. Maximize entropy. That's why we call time. That the lower entropy fluctuations is not observable. Well, I mean that's a that's a bold claim. Well, it could be true. It could not be true. Right. That that's why I think it's kind of want to point that out too. Like, how do you define time? Is time just a time like exists outside of um, the system, or the system changes and that induces time? I got a little lost in there. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but I think I, I got the gist of it. I know it's... Yeah, that's, that's an interesting... This is some, like, Einstein-level thoughts you're having here. It's easier when I can write them down, right? When I show to my, my colleague, when I wrote, mm-hmm. like, the um, the thing down, you know? It, it's, it's easier, but, like, to just explain it's a little difficult. I, I still haven't really made up my mind around it, so it's not really well-polished uh, thought yet. Because, like, well... Going back to Patrick's point about things in the universe, right? Like, well, if if Poincaré recurrent theorem holds, or or this apple in the box theory holds, then the, our universe exists in some kind of loop, <laughs> because like you know, it has to revisit like the the exact moment, this exact moment that we are talking is is a recom is a some kind of combination of atoms, right? And is 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 possible. Uh, in in this theory that that you know it has to revisit if given given infinite time or sufficiently long time it has to revisit this exact moment in this exact configuration that we're talking you know all the things in the world revolve this way then maybe the time in this case exists in some kind of loop because there's a finite number of atoms in the universe is not infinite then 
everything has to re- be revisited at some point. Yeah, so this, this apple in a box thought experiment, it's, it's kind of like you have a universe, um, eventually there's a heat death, and then after, since time can go on forever, well, okay, now I'm getting confused because, well, I guess if there's, the, yeah, yeah, time, time can go, you have infinite time, and again, things are changing because you have quantum fluctuation, so I'm trying to think about your the analogy you're making between time and change. And then I, I guess I'm thinking of the apple in a box, like, you know, the big bang, you get a universe, eventually it has a heat death. And again, there's other theories of how the universe ends, but like maybe the heat death is a good one. And then given enough time, you get a big bang again. It's kind of like yeah. the apple becomes a blob and eventually it reforms an apple. Although it's not probable it could happen because you're thinking exactly. of infinite time. Even though we say at the heat death, nothing can happen, but these quantum fluctuations kind of allow things to happen, right? Like, even though it's highly unlikely that, that in this, like, barren wasteland of probability that they, anything would happen at all when everything is so such at a fundamental level, but it's a fundamental state, but it's possible to, for those fundamental to, ex, to fluctuate into a less fundamental just tiny less. And if that happened many, many times, then it reconstruct the entire universe. Of course, that is if the system is isolated. Uh, and there are theories that suggest that the universe might not be isolated. Um, I, I heard one theory a long time ago that dark matter was actually matter from another universe that was colliding with our own. And so there are some pretty far out there theories, but that, that assumes that the universe is isolated, much like the apple in a box where nothing can get in, nothing can get out. Um, so yeah, uh, lot, lots of big questions here with, okay, well, uh, and lots of, I guess, um, criteria to ensure that this does happen. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting to think that maybe this has happened already. Like we see the universe is 13.7-ish billion years old, but maybe that's just from when um, the last Big Bang happened and maybe it happened before. Maybe it's just time is cyclical um, and everything that's happening now has happened again, which means there's been hyperthesis podcasts before. Yeah, I wonder how many yeah. episodes we got to. <laughs> well, I think this is um, the time reversal um, in, um, behavior is, is really interesting to talk about and you know it's, it go to the realm of the metaphysical where you know we can't test this right like so you gotta choose to believe the the things that makes more sense to you or you know makes make or not even sense sometimes you know like what you want to believe in right you want to believe that the world is just like a like a videotape. <laughs> I feel old now. You know, like a videotape. <laughs> like it rolls over video, and it's, it run. I mean, it runs out. Well, it's gonna roll over it again. See the same exact scenes because they're possible. Or you could say that. Well, I mean, time we, that we perceive is is because of change, and change only progress one way if you don't try to you know put energy and make it go other way other ways there's a natural way that things progress in in nature in in li- I mean not life in you know the physical universe and i think that if you well you can lead that connect that to let's say taoism too right there's a way of nature the tao um where it's like oh this way nature goes maybe the way change progress is maximizing entropy and then if you get to maximal entropy state of the universe, then that's it. However, the, the, the app in a box challenged that, right? Like, well, maybe, maybe the change is not absolute in one way. There are fluctuations that can induce the time reversal um, states that, that, you know, fluctuations can go to the state that it would not naturally go in the statistic, in then, like, let's say a, a, a bigger system or like more particles. Like if you talk about average, second law of thermodynamic holds beautifully. But if you talk about each individual particle, it's it I mean, why is it impossible that it won't be that it's able to go to the higher energy states? Because it's fuck there are fluctuations that make it can go to higher energy states. So there are two sides of the coin, which I I'm not sure what to believe. 
And you know, the 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 good part about being scientists is that we are um blasted with many theories and stuff to to try to help us make sense of this confusing concept, right? Like I used to believe a lot, oh yeah, second law of thermodynamics is absolute. Now that I look at this theory, like maybe it's not, you know, maybe it is allowed to the the fluctuations allow things to happen that you know not really seems possible practically, but probability is is interesting and infinite time is the uh, what's it called um gargantuan um requirement you know to have something be infinite and the power of infinity just negate all these impossibly um, low <laughs> probability. That is an interesting thing I want to point out, though, is that you don't necessarily need infinity for this. So if you're looking at the apple in a box and looking at the apple decaying and then going into its elementary particles and then reforming an apple, you just need a very large amount of time because it is, I, time is, depending on how you look at it, kind of an countable infinity, but in, in this case, you can measure the time that it takes for the apple to go from its original state to reformation. And yeah, it's just interesting to think that you technically don't need infinite time. And technically, just thinking about it, like, can you ever actually have infinite time that's not theoretical? Um, so, so same with the universe, like if it's an apple in a box as well, then you don't need infinite time for it to reach its state because it is countable and therefore it's not infinite. Well, they actually has calculations for it. It's actually, t I think to revisit uh, the states, like the, the minimal required time or like, you know, the maximal, uh, the maximum required time was like, you know, if you live long, what is sufficiently long is e to the power of entropy. <laughs> so, so entropy, you know, in the order of like 10 to the 30 for an apple or something like that. So e, the power of 10 to the 30 it, it that's a very large number right like it's, it's huge and that's like combinatorically large it's not just large like it's almost it's almost inaccessible in life or in any perceivable conceivable notion well that's something we something we didn't get into too much it's like different types of infinities um because you can think of like 10 to the 10 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 30 is a huge number and it's like really massive like you can't even comprehend it but what if you put 10 to the power of that number then that number is so much bigger than the previous number and so there's like it's infinities are a weird thing they're hard to think about because you like or big numbers in general are hard to think about because you can think this number is so huge that like so many numbers are lower than it but then there's also an infinite amount of numbers higher than it even if it's really really large and one thing I just want to comment on is in kind of the physics I do, at least, and what a lot of people do, is when we say infinity, we just mean something big. It's You can you can kind of approximate 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 30 is infinity pretty well. Um, and in these, these asymptotic calculations, I do a lot. You, you kind of say, you can even say like, oh, 100? Yeah, close enough to infinity, depending on the context, which is, you know, mathematicians don't like that, but... In certain contexts, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, there's all these different types of infinities to think about, which we didn't touch on too much, but this is very interesting to me. Just to comment on that, even in first-year calculus, we don't we use infinities like to calculate where asymptotes are and whatnot, but it's always as it approaches an infinity, not equal to infinity, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. But just going back to, I guess the the probability of something happening and the time it will take, uh, like what Feely was mentioning. I'd, I'd be very curious to see what that would look like on smaller scales than an apple. So if you had like a couple atoms in, say, a crystal lattice of some sort, uh, and then did the calculation, would that be a much more like achievable time? Maybe not within our lifetimes or uh, even within like the lifetime of the Earth, but is that an experiment that could theoretically be done where you can either run a simulation at a faster speed or measure like very very small arrangements of atoms or particles and see what happens to them over time well the problem with that is is the setup of the thing 
it theoretically or, or on paper we can discuss this all we want, right? Isolated system, but if you have three particles, you can't isolate it. But you want to measure things, you is you gonna interact with this at some point? You can put energy into it. Even let's say like, oh, apple in a box. Like, well, what's the box made of? Why is the box don't decay? Well, what what happened at the boundary of the box? Uh, well, is there some evanescence or quantum tunneling? Like, you know, things are going to get out or get in or like how can they not get out or get in, right? Like, and, and there's a problem of isolating it and there's a problem with infinite time with isolation. Like, well, well, well if it's possible that, that, that the thing can permeate the boundary, like even though it's highly unlikely, but if you give it infinite time, the apple is going to escape the box. Yeah, the... If you were to do an experiment on this, you probably need something. You need one of these ultra cold. The, the best one I can think of all the time in my head is like ultra cold atomic system. You put a, a small amount of atoms in this box, but they're always going to be interacting with something, even at like the nano Kelvin range where there's very, very little like background noise coming in and there's not like thermal fluctuations. They're still going to have to interact with the box and each other a little bit. And, yeah, like this, it's kind of metaphysical in the sense, like you said earlier, it's like, I don't think we can ever, I don't know if there's a good way to test this ever or a good answer that we'll ever come up with. Yeah, I guess the box itself would be subject to the uh, same decay and whatever the Apple experiences. So I guess the best way to experiment with it or to figure out just if it's possible is through simulations which that'd be a very powerful simulation one way to to do it is is to set up such a way that the box has like like much larger decay time that than the thing you try to observe right so i think that's what people do too right you trap certain material in in something well quote unquote stable materials that like oh yeah but we know those stable materials will decay you know, you tap, tap thinking glass level or some kind of uh, polymers, those polymers are going to decay, but, but it might take a thousand years where what, what you want to study might take two years to decay, right? So you can actually do that. So that, that might be a way to, but we can test it where, you know, the, the, the box doesn't contribute enough. But the thing is, like, enough is, is, uh, it's a loose word, right? You don't know if, if the boundary of the box, these this small interactions would actually create a catastrophic effect or the huge butterfly effect because you're like trying to test the smallest probabilities. So any other smallest probabilities has, has to be many order of magnitude smaller so that it doesn't you know, affect your experiment. But I think, oh, we have been talking about it for, for quite some time but the point is you know I went on this rabbit hole from this one question from <laughs> my friend's little brother and it was uh, it was quite intriguing and it made me think a lot about you know my perception of universe of entropy of time even and this kind of investigation helped me sort out through certain things and not even just for physics right I talked I mentioned briefly about Taoism, but also you can think about the concept in different in time for time in different um, um, well philosophy basically, right? How do you perceive the world, or even in terms of like uh, you know religious belief or other different um, type of belief that have on like how the universe will start and end, and well, well how do you find time? Can things become come back to be itself? Or can we revisit time? Or like, you know, can we can we travel back in time, right? If t- states can be reconstructed and time can be reversed, even in tiny scale, well, would it be possible for us to utilize that to go back to time? And there are, well, infinitely many <laughs> ways to to approach this, which I don't think is infinite, but could be. You know, the uh, you could also say that we touch the infinity is the realm of the divine or the realm of the imagination, the realm of the things we cannot access through measurement, 
So there are many, many school of thoughts and arguments in here. But at least for now, I think we can um, stop this here for today and I'll let Patrick tell everybody how to contact us in this great anniversary and first episode of the season four. Yes. So if you would like to contact us, uh, there are many different ways to do so. And there are many different reasons to do so. So the first way that you can contact us is through our Instagram account. We can be found at the Hyperthesis on Instagram. And you can reach out to us, send us a message. If you would like to be a guest on our show, we had a lot of guests last season and hopefully we have a lot more this season. Um, But if you are an expert in your field and you would like to be a guest, you can reach out to us via Instagram. And also if you're a fan of the show, you can also reach out to us. We recently got a message from a Mr. Plow on Instagram just telling us that they liked our 40th episode and that we should do more on measures. So thank you very much, Mr. Plow, for reaching out. That was very nice to hear your message. Uh, So if you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to us via Instagram. That's also where we post updates about shows, uh, as well as some behind-the-scenes look. Uh, Liam did an excellent picture of the three of us. It it, it was a very realistic picture. Uh, It was very well done. Uh, You can see us possibly in the future. Uh, You can also reach out to us over email. We are hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. We check that very frequently. Uh, And so if you have any questions or comments, again, you can find us on through email. We are also on... Oh, Liam? Oh, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, giving us ideas and suggestions is always really good. So so Mr. Plow, the the snow plow guy, um, because of his message, we're going to do an episode on measurement in the future um, because it's like, you know, we're interested in it too, right? And we can only come up with so many ideas on our own. Um, so the more ideas, the better help, help us out. We are, we are dumb. <laughs> yes, but we love to learn. So we would love to learn more about different topics. Uh, we've also uploaded a bunch of videos to YouTube. I think we're up to the end of season three now, or, or just about close to there. Uh, so check us out on YouTube as well. And you can share the videos with your friends. Uh, you can give us a subscribe there. And of course, if you want to listen to us, you already are listening to us. So thank you for doing that. Uh, But we can be found on pretty much any podcasting service available. We are based out of Spotify, uh, which I think is now Spotify for podcasters. Uh, It was changed from Anchor FM to Spotify. Uh, But we're also on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, and again, wherever you find your podcasts. So wherever you listen to us and however you want to reach us, Feel free to leave us a comment or questions. Let us know if you want to be a guest on our show. Make sure to subscribe, like, rate, uh, do whatever needs to be done, uh, and especially share our show so that uh, other people can hear it and get some good ideas. Well, I think lastly, before we get to the story, I want to shout out uh, to Nathaniel Samuel for bringing light to the Apple in a Box theory to my ears. That makes me think a lot about it. So thank you. Yes. And continuing on with the idea of maybe not infinity, but very large numbers, uh, today's story will be focusing on finite numbers that are very large and their history. Because it's very hard to grasp the concept of things like infinities and countable infinities, which we discussed, like time, where you can count each second going up to infinity. are, are different than uh, uncountable infinities. So if, as an example of an uncountable infinity, if you look at numbers between 2 and 3, there are technically an infinite number of numbers that exist between 2 and 3. So 2.01, 2.001, 2.0001. And that's something that's an uncountable infinity because you can just keep going down and down and down. Whereas countable infinities are really interesting and they're actually quite useful in several different applications. And the idea of large numbers is that they're also countable so that we can actually calculate them, we can show them, well, or at least we can theorize how they might be shown, uh, which we'll get into in just a bit. But to go back with very large numbers, 
we have to go to around 3,000 years ago in ancient India, where there was a written text that contained a list of different names for different powers of 10. Now, these went all the way up to a degree of 12, which we now call a trillion. Uh, so 10 to the power of 12, uh, we call a trillion, but there were actually names for this uh, within this ancient Indian manuscript. And they had names for every power of 10, going from 1 all the way up to 10 to the power of 12. And I wouldn't try and pronounce any of these names, and I'm not even sure if the pronunciation is um, something that's been preserved in different languages. But they consist of a very large range of numbers, especially for the time. At the time, Roman numerals were in use in Rome, um, and they were a lot clunkier to use. Uh, Rome itself, I think, could only go up to something like 100 million uh, in terms of their counting. So going up to a trillion was quite impressive. Uh, now, there were actually other extensive lists of numbers and their names for those different powers of 10 that came from ancient India as well, and a bit more modern India. Uh, one of these texts, known as the Lalitavistara Sutra, uh, apologies if I butchered that name, but it gave an even more extensive list of very large numbers, going up to powers of 421. That's 10 to the power of 421, which even today is quite a large number for a lot of people. Now, in this specific uh, text, and also the situation surrounding it, uh, it discussed the idea of expanding geometrically high to higher powers and giving them names. But it didn't go so far as to actually do that, because 421 names for each different power of 10 is quite a lot. And there were even some more texts from ancient India um, that were a bit later, so more so in the common area than before the common area, which gave exponents to exponents. And at this point, we had the largest number uh, written down, which was 10 to the power of 10 times 2 to the power of 122. And that 10 times 2 to the power of 122 is all in the exponent of the 10. So again, that's quite a large number. I think that's even larger than the uh, time that it would take uh, for an apple to reconstruct itself in a box, as we discussed earlier. But still, that's a pretty small number. Now, for the time, it was very large. Other civilizations were not really as well-versed in large numbers. So ancient Greeks only had numbers up to 100 million, or a myriad myriad. Um, and a myriad is, was an actual kind of number. And it came, came around the time of Archimedes, where he also kind of discussed the idea of exponents. However, the Indians were very superior with their inventions of numbers, having invented both negative numbers and zero, uh, both of which are extremely important. Um, they were also actually familiar with the notion of infinity, and defined it as a number where the denominator is zero. So this concept of infinity, and especially this kind of calculable infinity, has been around for a long time, and we have the Indians to thank very much for many of the different numbers and the system of numbers that we use. Now, while these large numbers that were brought up many thousands and hundreds of years ago were expressed with exponents, modern mathematicians needed new notations to express these numbers. Because you could just keep writing exponents and exponents and exponents, but after a while your hand gets tired or doing a program to do it, it runs out of memory, uh, things like that. Now, one method uh, that was able to essentially make a shorthand for writing many exponents is tetration, which works on a method of using repeated exponents. So for example, you can have tetration with 2. Uh, so it's 2 to the power of 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 2. And it just keeps going for as long as you want, uh, depending on what numbers you use in the notation. Now, this is much more efficient than writing exponents. So you don't have to write 2 to the power of 2 to the power of 2. You can just write uh, the tetrified version, I guess, would be the name of it. Um, but even this isn't able to really express very, very large numbers. So, of course, mathematicians, being who they are, invented new methods to express these large numbers. Now, at this point, it is worth mentioning some very notable large numbers. Uh, the first that comes to mind, and might be the most common, is Google, 
uh, not the giant search engine, uh, but the number G-O-O-G-O-L, which their name might be based out of, which is 10 to the power of 100. Now, uh, this has been surpassed um, and is definitely not the largest number. But there are some other notable large numbers, such as the largest known prime number. Now, this may have been updated um, since the source that I read it from, but it's known as the Mersen, Mersen or Mersenay prime, which is 2 to the power of 82,580. No. Yeah, uh, it's 82,589,933 minus 1. So it's the largest prime number that we know of and that we've calculated. I'm sure it's been replaced. I think this is from 2018, but it's quite a large number. And the fact that's prime is super cool. And that gets into a whole debate on an infinite number of prime numbers or not. Um, the fact that it has minus one is really cool. Just like, you know, uh, they probably t try to buy it a closest even or something and they just like oh well i'm gonna make it odd so they're prime <laughs> um, yeah i think that's how some algorithms do it um but even then that's not really that big of a number we have numbers like a google google plex which is 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 100 or just 10 to the power of google um which is an even larger number than that prime number uh and they're then there are other numbers like skews's number, um, which has some very interesting notation. I will not get into it. The notation for some of these numbers is just ridiculous, but it's pure math. So, of course, uh, it's, it has to be a bit like that. Now, the largest number for quite a while was Graham's number, which actually won the Guinness World Record for largest number in 1980. Uh, but it can't be represented in any way that's communicable by speech. Graham's number plus one beats it. <laughs> and, and that's the thing with these large numbers, is you can say, okay, but plus one is larger. Except for the last one. But just a bit on Graham's number. Um, it was a significant jump in the largest number that could be expressed and determined, uh, but actually requires algorithms to actually express. And just as reference, the number of digits within Graham's number cannot be expressed in the observable universe. So we don't actually have enough information in the universe to express the number of digits that are in the observable universe. So it's, it's a decently large number. There's a really good YouTube video on Graham's number. It's by, oh God, what are they called again? Number uh, file. Number file, that's it. Yeah. I would watch that. It's kind of mind-blowing how big it is. Yeah, they, they do a really good job with explaining Graham's number and detailing it out, and it even has its own special symbol. Now, since around 1980, there has been more work into going into larger numbers, um, and some of the notations involved with this would take several episodes to preface and explain. So there's things like Kruskal's tree theorem, which is um, complicated, uh, but the current largest number is known as Rayo's number. And this was named after Augustin Rayo, who introduced it in 2007 during a big number duel at MIT. Uh, and it was def its definition, there's a more technical one, but this definition in English is the smallest number bigger than any finite number named by an expression in the language of first order set theory with a Google symbols or less. So that's a lot to unpack we wouldn't be unpacking all of it but essentially what it's saying is that there is a specific number that exists that can be expressed using first order set theory so not english or arabic numbers but um using different symbols from set theory which has a maximum number of letters from this set theory that's under a google so under google symbols that can be expressed that is the largest number possible, or, or at least according to this. Now, this is not a number that we actually know about. We kind of know Graham's number, or at least we know how to represent it, whereas this one is a bit more arbitrary, um, and it uses just completely different language and notation than what we're used to with exponents. 
And it, it, it's very interesting to think of these kind of abstract concepts of very large numbers and just the fact that there's an idea of how the largest number could be represented. But it's also extremely difficult to actually represent is very interesting. So while infinity does doesn't really exist, but kind of exists as a tangible result, such as think about just dividing by zero, that approaches infinity as you get closer and closer to zero. And that's how uh, ancient Indian mathematicians were able to express infinity. Expressing very large numbers is a lot more complicated, and it's a very interesting challenge for mathematicians. And it will be interesting to see if there's any future notation that arises from this as they try and go larger and larger and larger. All right. Thank you, Patrick, for the enlightening story. It's, you know, infinity is such an important concept, not just in physics, in math. And I think it's a good exercise of thought to anybody. But I think it's a wrap for our first episode of the fourth season. And it's our anniversary episode. So... You all have a good day and take care. Bye, everyone. See ya.